Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Grace. Um, if you don't know me, uh, my name is Drew, and I am the director of worship arts here. And so normally I get to serve with the, the worship team, but I'm blessed to be with you this morning to bring um, the word. And uh, I've, I've made the joke before, and so if you've been here when I've preached before, um, this, this is an old joke, but I've made the joke before that I'm the review guy that I don't know how to really preach, and so I just come and rehash what everyone else has already said. And the irony was not lost in me that um, I, I get to preach on the end of the book. Um, and so I get to rehash what everyone else said. No, I'm just joking. Um, can we all open up our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5? Um, if you have your own Bible, I don't know what page that is, but if you are going to use the Pew Bible that's in front of you, um, that's on page 582. And while you're opening to that, um, I want to tell you a little bit about myself and, and as I was growing up. I was always a very independent child. Um, I don't know what my first words were, but my mom tells me that one of the first phrases I ever said was, I do it. Um, and so like if she was trying to feed me dinner or something, you know, I do it. You know, or, or if she's holding the cup of juice, I do it. Um, and and this has continued through the rest of my life. And those of you that know me well enough know that I'm, I'm fairly independent and fairly still kind of saying, I do it. I, I, I like to get in there and, and experience things for myself and learn all I can about something. If there's something new that I haven't learned yet, I, I want to jump in and learn all there is to know about it to tell other people about this cool new thing I just found out. Um, and and I'm, I'm constantly curious about things. And that curiosity has, has gotten me into trouble Sometimes, especially when I was growing up, um, like the one time when I found this piece of rope from a ship, so like a, like a thick piece of rope from a ship, and I thought, wow, this would be awesome to use to climb up a wall. Because um, I think I'd seen some, some you know, James Bond movie or something, and I was going to climb straight up the wall with my feet walking as if it's on the ground, and you know, as if a five-year-old had the upper body strength to do that. But there's this wall behind our house that's maybe eight or 10 feet tall and have these little spike things coming out of it to keep out intruders or something. Um, but it was only two feet behind our house. It's a very narrow alleyway, but it's just narrow enough for me to be able to shimmy up between, and like it's a, a door jam. Has anyone ever done that when you're a kid or had a kid? And you're like, get down from there. Um, my mom was constantly telling me to get down from the door jam and I'd found one on the outside that was even taller. And it was amazing because I could shimmy up there. And so I thought, this will be great. I'll shimmy up and hang the rope there and climb up. And so I put the rope over my shoulders and I shimmied up between the wall and the house. And I got to the top and had, I tied a, a loop in the rope and I hung it onto the, the, the spike and made sure it was, it was secure. And then I, I looked down to make sure there's nothing beneath me and I let go to jump down. Not remembering that the rope that I just secured was running under my chin and over the back of my shoulder. And so as I jump down, the rope comes running across my neck very quickly and gives me this really bad rope burn that immediately turned red and started kind of pussing and scabbing a little bit, you know, but I thought it, it hurt and I was like, well, then forget that rope. And I just went on and kept playing. And a couple hours later, I go back home forgetting what had happened and my mom sees me and screams. So I have this big, ugly, brownish red scab on my neck that looks like I tried to hang myself. Um, <laughs> And then there's the other time that uh, my, my friends were swinging 
from a low-hanging branch. Now, see, this is the Philippines, you see, and so we all thought that we were monkeys, and there wasn't a whole lot of other stuff to do, and so my friends were swinging from a low-hanging branch on a tree, and my friend's dad had a Jeep, and so we were all standing on the bumper of this Jeep is kind of high up, and you hold on to the, the branch, and you can swing the eight or ten feet to the next car that was there. You know, really, really respectful of other people's property. And um, so we're swinging, and I thought, wow, won't it be really cool if I can do some cool Indiana Jones-type swing and kind of run along the bumper and jump out and swing out, you know, and do this cool thing, and everyone's going to be like, whoa, he's so cool. I think I was seven. And so I grabbed the branch, and I said, hey, everybody, watch this you know, famous last words, and um, grab the branch, and I'm standing, and I take my two running leaps off the, off the bumper, and I leap out, and I had thought ahead of time that maybe it's going to be hard to slow down when I hit the other bumper. But it's okay. I've thought of it already. What I'll just do is I'll kick off the other car as I'm going by to make it look like I meant to do that and swing back around to the Jeep, and it'll be really cool. So I thought about this, so I kick my running leap, I jump out, I swing out, just like I thought. I was going a little fast and coming around, it's going to be hard to stop. So I just kick off the other bumper and, you know, everything's going great until at that moment that I kick off the other bumper of the car, I realize both of these cars are parked next to a barbed wire fence. And so I'm swinging this way. And it's the Philippines, it's the tropics, I'm wearing shorts. Who wears pants? And so I... Uh, come right into the barbed wire fence and just scrape along on one leg the whole time and it hurts and, you know, I, I cry a little bit and it's deep, pretty deep gashes um, on my leg and, and I go home and my mom sees me and she screams, of course, because she thinks some Bengal tiger has come and swiped at her, her son in the, in the jungle there. I had to get a tetanus shot or something. But needless to say, um, my mom blames me for just about every single gray hair she has ever gotten. And, and I understand why. Um, and, and there's lots of times looking back that things could have been really bad, right? But I mean, I had protection, not, not just from God, although that's true, but I had the protection of family. I had the protection of being secure in who I was and the fact that I had a home and the fact that I was loved. And, and that made me secure in those things so that I could be reckless in other things, you know, or I could be um, exploring other things. I could, I could stand on that foundation or, or, or leap off that foundation, depending on the circumstances. But it doesn't change the fact that there's been times when I've leapt off too far, or I've, I've, I've gone out doing something too far on my own, or I've tried to take it on my own power, or I haven't relied on anyone else's help and I realize when I get to the end of myself that I've, I've gone too far on my own because I still have that I do it mentality and that hasn't changed. Um, now for the past few months, we've been studying from Peter's first letter to the scattered churches as he's been teaching and instructing them. And Peter is the guy that had plenty of I do it moments, right? And we, we read about those in the gospels and it's this Peter guy that's leaping and then thinking, you know, but this Peter who has written this letter, this is years later. And so this is a Peter who has learned from his experiences in life. And he has grown and he has been humbled and he is trying to teach us from his experiences. And while um, in the time that we spent in the last couple of months of being in these sermons, um, we, we've learned many different things 
and we've maybe taken away many different ideas or, or challenges to try and put into practice in our own lives. Um, but I think there's still a main focus that Peter is going to hit home for us one more time as he ends this letter. And so um, let's read together 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to be starting at verse 8 and going to the end. It says, Be self-controlled and alert, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world, your family of believers throughout the world, are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, Peter is just finished in the section right before this. He's just finished speaking to the churches in separate groups and then as a whole. Remember last week, Lee was talking to us about how Peter was speaking to the elders and to the young, to the whole. So he's speaking to the different groups and then together as one whole family saying, hey, I want to encourage you to be humble and to submit to each other in mutual love and affection as the family of God. He wants them to live together as members of God's family, and saying, he's saying, even though they face persecution from the outside, he wants them to have unity together and trust that God is protecting them. And this is summed up in verse 7, which was the last verse of last week's passage. It says, cast all your anxiety on him, on God, because he cares for you. Trust that God has got you because he loves you. But, He doesn't want them to become complacent or or blind to the fact that there is a real enemy. And that's where we pick up in verse 8. Be self-controlled and alert or be sober-minded. Pay attention. Wake up. Your Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Or actually that word devour could be translated looking for someone to swallow whole. Peter says, don't worry about the attacks from people around you. They're not your enemy. They are your mission field. But remember that you do have a real enemy, Satan. And to drive home the point, he likens the devil to a lion prowling around looking for someone to devour or looking for someone to swallow whole. Now, does anyone know how lions hunt? I being the I do it curious guy, I decided that was a good use of my time yesterday while uh, prepping for the sermon was to go find out how lions hunt. And so I went on this tangent that was actually really fascinating. If you've ever looked up like how the whole food chain in the safari works, it's fascinating. But I found out that lions hunt one of two ways. And the first way the lions hunt is to just chase down their prey. I mean, they're big cats. And so what they try and do is they separate whatever animal they're hunting from some area of protection whether it's the herd or some brush, and they chase them out of there. And then as the animal's running to the next area of protection, some other shelter or back to the herd, they chase them down and catch them, right? But the problem is 
lions actually aren't as fast as most of the animals that they hunt, whether it's antelopes or gazelle or boar. They're actually not as fast, and so that's why they have to sneak up and get close. And we've all seen this in National Geographic, the, the lion stalking in the tall grass, you know, and it's doing this kind of thing, and it's getting close, and it waits, and it gets kind of close. Now, the funny thing about lions is they're smart. They, they know they're not that fast, which is why they have to sneak up to get close. So if they're seen when they're still somewhat far off, there's no chance. They've lost their element of surprise, and there's no way they're going to chase down that gazelle. The gazelle's faster than them. So if the gazelle notices them and sees them while they're stalking, all of a sudden they just go, oh, they sit up and look off in the distance like, no, I wasn't stalking you. I was just out for a stroll. <clears throat> this is nice. You know, anyone have any, any cat owners in the room? You know this. You've seen, you've seen your cat stalking you through the tall carpet, you know, and it's coming. And it's looking and it's stalking its prey, which just happens to be that little fuzzy thing on the end of your sock, you know, and it's getting ready and it's getting ready. And then you look at it and it goes, what? No, I wasn't doing anything. This is a really interesting wall. I've never looked at this wall before. Because they know once they've been seen, they've lost the element of surprise. So they're not going to catch their prey. So the other way that lions hunt in order to get close enough, is instead of chasing after their prey, they have the prey come to them. So they find some area that the prey are going to be, like a watering hole or maybe their den or something, and they find some brush or other shelter nearby, and they climb in and they hide, and they wait. And lions are very patient. And so when I was doing this research and learning about this, there's a story from one of the rangers in the safari that told about this herd of antelope. I don't know if they're called herds, but they're going through to the watering hole, and they had to walk through this path that was in this underbrush. And they didn't know that there's a whole pride of lions waiting for them in the underbrush. So they're going through the watering hole, and they, they got ambushed, and a couple of them got taken, and the rest fled. And the lions are like, yes, that worked. Brought them in. But see, the funny thing was, antelope are stupid, and most of the animals that lions um, hunt are pretty dumb. And so the antelope, two hours later, decided, hey, we're thirsty. We got to go back to the watering hole. And they went back through the same path. And the lions were still there. And so again, they got ambushed and a couple of them got taken and the rest ran away. And two hours later, the third time it happened again and the same thing happened again with obvious results as if the antelope forgot, hey, why are there less of us around here? You know, what's this scratch from? I don't remember. And so they got taken. And I was reading this and, and actually laughing and then I stopped and went, wow, that sounds a whole lot like me when I fall back into sin. I mean, if Satan is the lion, anyone else go back through that same path thinking something different is going to happen and then you're surprised when you fall back into that sin you thought you were safe from? And I thought that was interesting to me. But Peter here is trying to hit home the point that we have an enemy and he's not to be messed with. He's a lion. He's ferocious and you don't walk away from a lion attack, right? It's not some scratch that you go, oh, I'm going to learn from that later. It is a big deal. But we can resist him. It continues in verse 10, or sorry, in verse 9, it says, resist him, standing firm in the faith. Resist the devil. He's not some unstoppable force. I mean, antelopes, can stop lions in their tracks just by staring him down, right? So Peter's saying, resist the devil. The book right before 1 Peter is James. And James has a passage in chapter 4 that is almost identical to this passage because it's hitting a lot of the same things about resisting the devil. And what James says is he says, resist the devil. This is James 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 7. Resist the devil 
and he will flee from you. How, how do we resist him? Well, Peter says, by standing firm in the faith. What faith are we supposed to stand firm in? It's that faith that God called us into when he chose us as his family and established us as the family of God. He says, stand firm in the family that you've been adopted into because, and it continues, he says, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. Now, two weeks ago, John preached on a passage about sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And he was talking about when we share in a common experience as someone else, it binds us to them in a deeper way because we have a common experience. And so Peter was saying in that passage that when we share in the sufferings of Christ, it binds us to Christ in a deeper way. So again, Peter's saying, hey guys, there's a bigger spiritual family that you're a part of that are going through the same ups and downs that you are. So take, take solace in that. But this family that we're called into isn't just brought together by common experiences. We're not all just part of the same book club. We don't all have kids that go to the same soccer league. We're not just part of something that we like each other and we get along with the same ideas. That's not what unites us. What unites us in the spiritual family is our Father who unites us. And that's where Peter goes next in verse 10. He says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Peter here is reminding us that we are called towards eternity. Our family that God has brought us into is an eternal one. It's one that doesn't perish, doesn't fade away, but we're not there yet, right? Peter recognizes we still live on this side of heaven and there's suffering and there's injustice and, and things aren't the way God intended, but God promises that the suffering will have an end. Even though our life right now doesn't match up exactly with the way scripture says eternity with God will be like, God says, after you suffered for a, a little while, there will be an end. Then, God himself will restore you. He'll put things right. Through Jesus, he will right the wrongs that have been going on. Peter is encouraging his church saying, Christians suffering just for the fact of their faith isn't right. That's not the way God intended it. People who are traded and trafficked and, and passed around as commodity, that's not right. That's not the way God intended it when he created the world. But God has promised through Jesus when he returns that he will set right those wrongs. And not only that, but Peter was writing to churches who were weak and they were preyed upon at that point in the Roman Empire. They were the bad guys. But God promises that through Jesus, when he comes again, he will make you strong, it says. Because when Jesus comes back, we're not going to be the weak ones. We're going to be the rulers and the co-heirs and the, the stewards of God's creation along with Christ. Even though right now, there might be suffering for a little while, and, and maybe that suffering um, allows our faith to give way to doubt, God promises that he will make us firm and steadfast. He'll make us secure. Because when Jesus comes back, if our foundation of our faith is built upon Christ, when he shows up, we'll be like, oh, yeah, okay, you're, you were right. You, you're a good foundation to be on. Back in chapter 2, um, Peter was talking to his church and calling 
Jesus the living stone and saying that we too are living stones that are being built up into a holy house of God. Pastor Chris taught on that passage and, and he was talking about how because Christ is living stone and therefore we are living stones, that means that who we are should flow out of who Christ is, right? He is the cornerstone that establishes our foundation. He is the capstone that finishes the building project. But it's God our Father who is using us as living stones to build his temple. We're not supposed to be scattered rocks in a field. We're part of something bigger. We're built together into a house for God, built on the foundation of Jesus. And I don't know if you realize this, but this isn't something that we can do on our own. I can't build you into a house for God. You cannot build your family into a holy priesthood for the glory of God. We can't do it. That is something that only God can do because he has the power to bring about transformation and change, not only in us, but in the world. And it's him who's building us and establishing us as a holy priesthood for the purpose of obedience to Jesus Christ. It's this same God who has chosen us to be his people for the purpose of declaring his praises. That same God promises that though there might be suffering now, he himself will right all the wrongs and establish us to the fullness of what we've been called to. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Peter wraps up his, his letter by driving home that point of us being in family together, established on Jesus for the purpose of glorifying God. And he ends his, his letter with greetings. Now we open our letters um, today with greetings. And back then, they closed letters with greetings. So he just ends with greetings. Um, and so verse 12 says, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother. Um, this guy, Silas, um, was an aide to the apostles. He's mentioned in multiple places of scripture. He helped out both Paul and Peter. And so more than likely, um, he could have been the scribe, perhaps, that actually wrote down the letter as Peter was dictating it. Or maybe he was just the courier that carried it to the churches once it was done. But regardless, Peter's saying, hey, this guy that just gave you this letter from me, I regard him as a faithful brother, so treat him as such. So with the help of Silas, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Peter's saying, I wrote to you to remind you of God's grace. And what's that God's grace I reminded you from? I want to remind you that you have been chosen by God as his family. I want to remind you that, that when we live as a family of God ought to, then we get to reveal his kingdom and that the watching world gets to see God at work in us. And as it says in chapter 2, verse 12, that when the watching world sees the kingdom of God and the character of God at work in our lives and in our family, it says they will glorify God on the day he visits us. All of that is the true grace of God. So stand fast in it. Verse 13 um, is a little bit more encouragement. She who's in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. She who's in Babylon could be a person or it could just be code for the church that was in Rome at that time. But he's pretty much saying, hey, you have a bigger family and the members of your family over here want to encourage you and send their blessings, so I'm passing it along to you. Greet one another with a kiss of love. 
peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, um, this is the line that makes um, the greet one another with a kiss of love. That's the part where all the guys in the room start going, what? And, and maybe the college guys in the room go, what? Um, and, but I just want to let you know, it's, he's not telling people to actually kiss each other. He's not saying, hey, here's law. What he's doing was he's just affirming a cultural practice of the time, that back in that time and in that part of the world, customary um, greeting for family and, and close friends was the, the kiss on the cheek. And so he's saying, hey, you do this with your family, your close friends. Well, guess what? Your family believers act like family. Treat each other like family. Start greeting each other in the same way that you would your family. And as you treat each other like family, well, then you start feeling more like family. And the more you feel like family and God is growing you together and establishing you as this, this family, well, then the more we act towards each other and take care of each other and treat each other as the family of God. And the amazing thing is that other people get to see that. And God uses that to glorify himself in the way that we act as the family of God. By just submitting to God and to each other and greeting each other with love, God reveals the character and kingdom work of Jesus Christ in our lives. And those who see it can't help but glorify God. Living as the family of God reveals the kingdom of God to the watching world. And then it causes them to praise him. Isn't that amazing how our God uses us as broken family members to bring glory to himself for people that don't even know who he is? But see, the question is, how do we know if we're really revealing God's character and his kingdom in our lives? How do I know if I'm doing it right? Because I like to do it. I like to know that I'm doing it right and I want to figure it out. How do I know? Now, this is something I've been, been wrestling with this week. And I've got a couple of thoughts that I hope will provoke your thoughts. Um, so, if for the rest of the sermon you want to grab out that Kairos card and just have it ready um, to see if, if God's pointing something out to you or for the rest of the, the service time, just be tuning in to see maybe that's something that Drew shared from what, how God's been wrestling with him. Maybe that's going to prompt something in my heart. And it might be related, it might be different. But this is the time to start listening to our Father as he is going to be pushing on our hearts to show us the places that, that, that he, he wants to bring about transformation in our lives. So the two questions the two areas of my life that I chewed on this week as far as how they glorify God was, was in my family unit, my blood family unit, and then in my kind of peripheral relationships. So acquaintances, strangers, and stuff like that. And so the questions I had was, how do I glorify God in my marriage? And how do I reveal Jesus' character and his kingdom work to the people that I meet? Now first, my marriage. Now, this, this is just something that I've been chewing on again, and so I'm not intending to tell you the answer for your marriage or for your family unit. Um, I, I know I've been married for a little over five months, so I figured it all out, and I have all the answers, and I have not messed up once, and my wife is shaking her head. Um, you can talk to her later about the stories. Um, no, seriously, I, I just want to get you thinking about where God might be um, asking you to wrestle with him this week and what he might be saying to you. So here's what I've been chewing on. My marriage 
the purpose of my marriage is not to make me happy right now. The purpose of my marriage is not for my happiness right now. The purpose of my marriage is to give glory to God for eternity and for him to use that to reveal his character to the people who see us. My job, my my one job, is to keep pointing my wife to Jesus. To keep pointing her back to Jesus and, and then submitting to her and supporting her and holding her accountable to the work that the Holy Spirit's doing in her life. It's not my job to put on a good show of happiness whenever, whenever other people are watching of, oh, we're the happy young couple in love, and then when we close the door, we get back to our fight we just have. It's not my job to win points or to be the example of the doting husband. Even if my intention is so that when others see, they can see, yeah, see, this is what a marriage looks like when Jesus is in it. Because the thing is, if it's my job to reveal God's character, I'm not going to be very good at that all the time. If it relies upon my ability to be the example of the loving husband, God's character isn't going to be exemplified in me very well all the time. I'm not able to do it by myself. I can't force you to glorify God just by looking at my life. I can't do it. It's God that does it. All I can do is point my wife to Jesus and ask her to do the same thing for me. And then when we submit to God together in that and we submit to each other in that, it's God who's the one at work and he's the one that reveals himself to those who watch. You might have had someone tell you before or heard it described about someone else of, I just see Jesus in you. Or I just saw the Holy Spirit at work in your life or Man, I can just see the Father's love in that person. Now, if you've ever had someone say that to you and describe you in that way before, chances are, and I would bet money on it, you weren't trying to do that. It was just, thankfully, a moment of maybe you were actually submitting to God in your life and he revealed himself to whoever was watching. Now, what about revealing God's character and his kingdom in the way that I relate to strangers or the people that I meet? Well, I've realized that I can talk a pretty good talk. Like, I, I know how to share what's God doing in my life. I know how to encourage people to go back to the scriptures. I've even got a couple of choice phrases that sound really spiritual that say, hey, you should like chew on that with God, you know? What's God saying to you right now? Well, I think I'm hearing God say this. And, 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 and that's all well and good. But again, in that, even in the moments where I'm actually submitting to God in that, all I'm showing is how God's wrestling with me and my life in a one-person one thing. And God doesn't call us to be lone rangers. God calls us as part of a family. He calls us as a priesthood, not as individual priests. Even when, when Jesus sent out his disciples to do mission, he sent them out in pairs and groups. So the mission of God is meant to be done as a family. So the way that I reveal God's character and his kingdom to the people that I meet is by inviting them in to see my family. It's by inviting them in to see how we are living as the family of God ought to and then letting him do the work of revealing himself to those who are watching. All we have to do is actually just open up and invite people in. But see, that poses a problem now, doesn't it? Because maybe 
my life isn't the kind that points to Jesus all the time. Maybe I'm not in a good rhythm of submitting to my spouse for the glory of God. I don't want people to see that. The question we have to ask ourselves is, are we willing to start submitting to God in the way that we lead our spouse? Are we willing to submit to God and allow him to lead the way that we guide and lead our, our families and our friends? Are we willing to stop separating ourselves from each other and, and, and having our own personal space and putting up, up that facade of Sunday morning me and only letting people into that, but not letting them see the struggles that are behind that or the success that's behind that? Are we willing to start opening up and being vulnerable with each other as a family to be able to hold each other up through the ups and downs that, guess what, all of us are experiencing together? Are we even not, just outside of this family, that we might even like the people and know them fairly well in this room, but even outside of that, what about strangers? Are we, are we willing to invite them in to see us on our good days and our bad, but also to see where Jesus is at work in our lives and to see the places where we are turning completely away from Jesus for the sake of holding us accountable it comes down to, are we actually willing to submit our entire lives to God? Now, if any of those questions made you feel a little pressure or a little uncomfortable, or if the answer was no, which is okay, there's about four of those that made my skin crawl. If there is an answer that you said no to any of those, maybe that's where God wants to talk to you today. Maybe that's where he's pressing and saying, yeah, I know you've given me this much of your heart, but I want that too. Because it's only when we lift up and glorify God above all other things in our lives and when we submit to the family that he has called us to, that he is able to work through us and reveal himself to the world. That is the true grace of God. That is what the Christian life is calling us to. To live as a family of God so that those who see can glorify God on the day he visits us. Now these are some heavy questions. But let us take encouragement from the way that Peter closes his letter. Though he started in chapter one, by greeting all the scattered strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He now finishes his letter by saying, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Because we're not separated strangers anymore. We were once lost and alone and frantic and helpless, but now we are in Christ. We were once trying to live as good a life as we could on our own. But now we are gathered under God's mighty hand so that he may lift us up. Amen? Let's pray together. God, we need you. We need you to humble us. We need you to enter into our hearts. God, we give you these hearts of stone 
that have become callous and cold, and we ask that you remove it and give us a heart of flesh, a heart that is moldable, a heart that wants to be transformed by you. God, there are areas in our lives that do not give you glory. In fact, they take glory from you. And we want to give that to you today. Speak to us this morning. Show us the places in our lives we have not yet submitted to you. Give us boldness to open up to our family believers that we're surrounded by so that they can hold us accountable to this transformative work you are doing in us. And remind us, God, that we don't have to do it on our own because we have a mighty God. We have a loving Father. And we have a strong King who leads us. Give us today exactly what we need and lead us, God, so that we can reveal your character and your kingdom. In your holy and precious name, amen.